0: A little bit of confession time. We were having some issues with our feed going out. So unfortunately, episodes number 26 and 27 more or less came out on the same day. I apologize for that. If you haven't had the chance to listen to the second half of Jeff's story of buying Spring Dance, I definitely encourage you to do that. It's a really good one. We've been getting great feedback on our conversation with Larry Cornelia from episode 27. So thanks for that. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you left a review which we talk about in depth at the end of episode 26. So go back and listen. Okay, enough of that. Here's the show. This is the Spa Retailer Podcast, where we talk about retail, business, and all things related to the hot tub industry. I'm Megan Kendrick, owner of Spa Retailer Magazine.
1: And I'm Jeff Bailey, owner of Spring Dance Hot Tubs in Philadelphia. All
0: right. All right. So we are here for our second issue or issue, good grief. Do I work in print or do I work in print (laughs) (laughs) for our second episode of the year? And we are very excited to have Brian Quint from Aquaquip with us. The industry has been abuzz with the news that Brian's company was bought by Leslie's at the end of January. And so that's been big industry news and very exciting. And we're really happy, Brian, that you're willing to talk to us about it on the podcast. A pleasure. Um, I've known Brian for a long time. I feel like we have interviewed you over the years many, many times for the magazine and you've always been you've always been a great resource. Brian, I know you and Jeff work on opposite sides of the country, but you actually know each other pretty well right
2: we do uh we have a a rich history uh some of which we can probably even talk about on this podcast um but we go way back and we met through uh just through peers in the industry, and we uh, interacted uh, through shared manufacturer activities.
1: I remember the dinner. It was in New Orleans, if I if I if I remember correctly, and we shared a table there at a at a Leisure Concepts dinner.
2: Oh, it was a Leisure Concepts dinner, absolutely. And then we obviously between Leisure Concepts, um, hydro pool, hot tub manufacturers. Industry events, yeah we we've uh, spent a lot of a lot of time. I'd like to spend more time with them, but uh, we are on opposite sides of the country.
1: You're a terrific friend. I wish I had more time with you. You're, you've always been so helpful. Thank you, Jeff. Same.
0: Well, I guess we should just jump right in. We don't have a you know we don't have Brian for a ton of time today. So, I mean, just for our readers who do not know Aquaquip or or you, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about the background of of the company and your time in the industry?
2: Sure. Uh, without going into great detail, uh, the, the, the roots of the business go back to 1959 when my mother and father added a small section of pool products, pool supplies to, uh, the family lumber yard in Seattle. What was bold and unique about that is that there were 300 pool owners in Seattle at the time. And so my mother and dad knew that they wanted to diversify from the lumber industry. That industry was changing and they researched a bunch of options and came upon a pool store in Northern California, excuse me, a lumber yard in Northern California that was selling pool chemicals. My dad and mom went down, met the owner and decided to come back up and add a small section of the pool chemicals and supplies, probably a uh, 150 square feet in the corner of the family lumber yard. I went to, I went to, to first grade that year kindergarten, actually. Uh, My mother came to work and ran the pool supply business. They coined the name AquaQuip Pool Supply. Uh, Ten years later, the pool business had grown. The market, the uh, geography, was there were more pools, apartments, hotels, things like that. Uh, we got into the service business between 1959 and 1969, and the decision was made just to close out the lumber yard in 69 and focus entirely on swimming pools, of all things, in Seattle. 1979, we. Uh, my mother, and, it happens to be the year I, I came back to work for my dad graduated college, went out into uh, a couple of years and went into banking and some finance related stuff, came back in in 79, which happened to be the year that we opened our second retail store. So that's when we decided to go into, to come to kind of become a multi-store business. Uh, within the next 10 years, we opened a store, a third store, a fourth store, and and a fifth store, all in the greater Seattle area. In the mid 80s, uh, we added hot tubs to the mix. We were a little late in coming to the hot tub business. Blair and Alice at Olympic were already in this market. Uh, they were originally building cedar hot tubs, and then they had brought in a, a line of hot tubs. Now, clearly, at the hot spring spa that's so they were already in the market. There were a number of wood wood hot tub dealers in the market, but we sort of felt like while we were late in coming to that the category, there was a lot of maturity that had to happen in those first ten years based upon sales tactics and quality of organizations that were selling. Blair and Alice were really the institution and always have uh, at Olympic. In the early 90s, we added swimming pool construction to our business. It's not a big part of our business, but uh, in the early 90s, uh, the decision was made to try building pools. And so we're still doing that. Again, not a big, huge portion of our business, but a nice complementary portion of our business in 1999 we we i uh, my dad had passed away in 95 in 99 uh, at an industry social event i started to interact with Eric and Kathleen Carlson they had i mean i knew them and i'd done business with sort of alongside them for many years in this market they had three stores uh, my mother and i had five stores And we made the decision in 99 to kind of come together so we could sort of attack the greater Seattle-Tacoma market together and became business partners. So from 1999 on, business was owned by my... Mother, myself, and Eric and Kathleen Carlson. Over the next many years and a few recessions and downturns in 06, we sort of ramped up our barbecue grill business. In 07, we ramped up uh, and entered the fireplace products business, so we sell fire gas fireplace inserts, not really many wood stoves in this market, but mostly fireplace inserts. And then in the late, uh, actually about 10 years ago, we made a, a greater commitment to the swim spa business. And so we obviously added swim spas to the, and a greater commitment to the swim spa business meant actually showing them rather than to try to sell them without having any presence in our showrooms. So that's a little bit of the history of the business. And that Really, all changed on the 24th of January of this year when when we were acquired by Leslie's. So technically, my mother and I no longer own the. Not even technically, the the owners of the company are not owners of the company more. The owners of the company now are Le, uh, Leslie's. It's Aquaquip, a division of Leslie's Pool Mart. Uh, we're being run in as we were. Myself, our vice president general manager, John Antilla, we're running the business. All the um, purchasing functions, all the accounting functions, all the warehousing and 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 distribution functions remain the same. It's just that we are now owned by Leslie's out of Phoenix and getting the benefit of their resources and buying power to help us grow the business. So really no change, still selling hot tubs, still selling a lot of pool products, still selling fireplace inserts, still building swimming pools. We have nine physical locations in the in the greater Seattle-Tacoma market as of today.
1: Hey, Brian, tell us like, you know, without getting too specific, but give us an idea uh, of the timeline, how this all came across with the with the purchase from uh, – with Leslie's purchasing.
2: It's important to note that uh, we weren't – the business was not for sale. I wasn't looking to uh, shop it. I had – over the last three years, we had valuations done. We had it done three years ago and then had it refreshed at the beginning of 2018. But those were, those were primarily performed so we could try to structure an exit over time for particularly the Carlsons as my business partners, they had sort of a a shorter runway of wanting to be active in the business than I did. And so therefore we went through the valuation process in order to try to set a a basis of value for that transaction that never occurred. So that it, it, that's the, to the extent of getting our business valued and putting it out on the market. It wasn't. Uh, the Monday after the 4th of July, eight months ago, um, I had a voicemail message on my office phone from the director of acquisitions at Leslie's. And his message was, I would love to have a conversation with you about your business and your part of the country. And please call me, blah, blah, blah. I think most people in our industry would be intrigued by that phone message. (laughs) I would like to think that most people in our industry would return that phone call. I happened to. I called them probably within a couple of hours. I tried not to seem overly eager, but more than anything, I, I, we knew who Leslie's was. We know what they do. We knew why they didn't have a presence in the Northwest is because it's, they're pretty much a pure pool retail aftermarket business and a pure pool retail aftermarket business. In the Pacific Northwest, if not the northern sort of reach of the country, what some manufacturers historically have referred to as the snow belt, there really isn't any long-term viability for a pure retail pool supply business. And so I figured I would return the call. I would listen. I would learn. And if nothing else, I'd have a little better sense of what could be happening in our own immediate market. If indeed Leslie's was looking to expand into that market, into this market, I didn't expect I didn't know what to expect. And so since you don't know what to expect, you return the call, you listen, you learn, and you hope that that first conversation is such that it leads to a second conversation. And that's really, uh, that's how it happened. And that's what you've got to sort of look at as what is success in a situation like that is you hope that you have enough reason to keep talking. Uh, we talked on Monday. We talked on Tuesday. We talked on Wednesday. We had a non-disclosure. Uh, signed by the end of the week and the CEO of the company flew up and we had breakfast together the following week. He, happened to be coming to Seattle for other reasons, apparently. And and then things just sort of took a life of its own from there. So it really started on approximately the 9th of July. And uh, and it took us about seven months of due diligence and learning and getting to know each other and getting a better understanding of where we sort of fit into their plans. And there we go. I find
1: that fascinating about getting the valuation done. You know, most people only do that right when they're going to sell but it's almost like taking a pulse of the business, too, uh, for sure.
2: I mean, I've been going, I'm sort of a student of the of the game of business. And so I, both John and I are in Vistage, which is a, a peer advisory best practices group. We uh, go to a lot of seminars. We go to a lot of education. And so I think the key is... Um, you have, I think you have a responsibility to understand what drives the value of your business. And I think that you at some point have to assess what that market value is, not necessarily so you can be ready to take advantage of a phone message left on your phone, but more than anything, so you can, as a business owner, understand what are the things you can be working on to enhance the value. If you enhance the performance of your business, you enhance the value of your business. And so really, it's I can't say we did a lot of things to, to grow the value of the business. We did a lot of things to enhance the performance and health of the business and if you improve on the performance and health of the business, then hopefully that will result in an enhanced valuation. But a valuation is only a valuation if there's someone willing sitting across the desk from you wanting to know how to spell your name on the check that they're about to write. Otherwise it doesn't buy you a it doesn't buy you a, a groceries. It doesn't do anything other than gives you a basis of w- are what are the activities that you should be focusing on or what are some of the activities that you're doing that add no value to your business. And I think that's a good reason to get a business valuation done. So you you know where you should be dedicating your, your energy to include your people and your dollars and your growth plans to enhance the, the performance of the business, which in turn, I guess, makes your business more valuable. And since none of us will live forever, I guess at some point we do sort of look towards some exit or some liquidity event that could include a family member that may include key employees, or in our case, It was all of those things, but in this case, suddenly an outside entity came into our industry, into our, not into our industry, but into, into my life. And it was one that I hadn't really planned on. We had the business valued for an internal transaction. So to tell you that it was priced as a financial purchase or a strategic purchase i can't really say but it was sort of middle range of what one might do for for a financial buyer someone looking to come in and buy a business and be self-employed versus a strategic buyer like a leslie's that sort of looks at one plus one equals three and that's how they looked at our business is taking what they have taking what we have Bolting them together, and therefore, what can we do strategically that we wouldn't be able to do individually?
0: So, did did the Carlsons go ahead and retire, or are they still a part of Aquaquip right now?
2: That's an excellent question. So, Kathleen uh, retired from the day-to-day of the business in January of 2017. So, she'd already retired from working in the business as a employee, but she was still involved because she and Eric owned a portion of the company. Eric uh, was active as an employee in the business and maintains that. Uh, So he is a full-time employee of the business. Really no change for Eric. He's focusing on the same sort of projects and areas of the business that he was uh, focusing on. So
0: it's kind of funny because you said, I mean, you sort of had you know, getting the valuation done had kind of prepared your business a little bit for this in a way, kind of by accident, but, but not really, because you have always been running your business, I imagine, in ways like that thinking down the road for what are the, what are the next steps?
2: Yeah, I sort of tried to take a professional approach. And not to say none of us, we're all professionals, but a professional approach at running this business, like a a business rather than a family owned this don't mean to make it sound derogatory, but a family sort of slush fund to where the business is a lifestyle choice and that a lot of people in our industry, not wrong, not wrong, but there's a price to pay for this uh, that, you know, that run maybe non-business expenses through their business and things like that. And so I felt like, particularly since I had non-family member, partners and that we were trying to enhance the performance and health of the business, we were running this business as tight of expense control as possible, meaning we were not looking for quasi-personal expenses to run through the business. That really, it, it didn't position the business for the kind of financial health that that we looked for so i guess in that we've been running the business with with an eye towards bottom line performance and profitability everybody's doing that but we weren't sort of dirtying it dirtying it up with a bunch of expenses that technically didn't belong in the business and so when the call from leslie's came and we ultimately it took us a while to get to valuation it didn't take us quite that long to get to sharing financial performance, because that was obviously some of the things they request in their early post NDA due diligence. But the beauty of our financials is when I delivered my financials to them, they were clean. I didn't give them my numbers and say, yeah, but there's about a hundred thousand more that really needs to be added back into income because of expenses that we as owners have run through the business. And so I think that the numbers were clean, didn't lead with a qualifier about our numbers or this, but they really should be this. And I think that that really allowed us to um, be better prepared for the opportunity to, if presented, to um, maximize value and in hopes of getting a transaction done.
0: It's interesting because a lot of the people, we've talked about acquisitions a lot in the magazine and we've talked to a couple of people on the podcast about it, Jeff included, But we're always talking about it on the other side. We're talking to the person who has purchased the business, not the person who has sold the business. So it's an interesting, it's interesting to look at it from that perspective and kind of what are the things that you need to do to get your house in order so that, so that you're prepared when someone out of the blue comes in and says, Hey, we're really interested in this.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's structural systems and process things that, that I think um, if, I mean, maybe we don't run our business uh, with the intent of selling it. I mean, again, none of us live forever and there's going to be an exit for all of us like it or not at some point. Hopefully it's planned. Hopefully it's thoughtful. Hopefully it's done proactively. And so really that with all sort of the business courses and business classes and all the peer advisory stuff, I think we realized that what you sort of needed to do was to build a business structure, people, org chart processes systems uh, that uh, are not dependent on a particular individual and that, in theory, it there are more templates. I, over the years, we've uh, a lot of us in the industry were exposed to Michael Gerber's work. But he basically worked with a lot of people in our industry to sort of develop templates and processes that were sustainable and duplicatable, regardless of who was sitting there doing that task. And so we built systems and processes that were not people depend, specific, person dependent, but more. Um, ways to structure our business. Uh, so org chart. I've had an internal accounting professional. Most of them have been CPAs dating back 25 years. And so I felt like that was important for us to, uh, to sort of have that level of professionalism in house so we can get the crispness and the timeliness of our financials. And then I've also been a big believer in open book management. So I adopted over over 25 years ago, there's a book called The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack. That was the early readings that I had on open book management. Now there's a number of people out promoting open book management. Uh, we used a product, the founder of it has passed away, but it's a, a product called Ownership Thinking that gave us a model in order to basically bring open book management down into the company Beyond just at the ownership level or at the senior management level. So we share financials. I continue to be willing, but I have been willing to share financial information, financial statements with. Anybody in the company that's willing to sit down and learn how to read them, if someone isn't willing to sit down and learn how to read financial statements, there's a lot There's a lot of misinformation that can be garnered by sharing financials. But mm-hmm. I believe that if we share financial information, then there's visibility to the team. It causes collaboration around what success looks like. So if we share financials and we talk about it and we make them common in our in our language, come up with keywords that are, you know, what does cash flow mean? Make sure we all are looking at cash flow the same way. But if you're willing to share financials and you educate people your team anybody in the team on uh, on how to read financials and then you're willing to be forthright about sharing them and then you have to also be willing to keep them keep surprises out of them and that so if we're if we look at the end of the year and we've got a high profit number and we want to manage that bottom line number because of tax purposes the problem is if you do that in an open book environment everything changes from the way your team was looking at financials to the year end because you've sort of dirtied your numbers up for, to, for tax reasons, but your team sort of lost track of what success looked like. So that was another reason why we worked so hard at sort of keeping our numbers clean. So when the team and it was a collaboration drove towards success and we all knew what success looked like because we shared both past current and projected financial performance by way of budgets for the future, then everybody got to be, everybody wants to, I think for the most part, people want to be part of a successful company. And so if by sharing numbers, involving people in what success looks like, telling them how we're doing uh, through the course of the year or journey, then people will feel a bigger part of the success. Or there was probably no better time to have open book management than 08. 09 and 10, when everybody could see uh, what was the challenge, what were the challenges of our business as well. And then once again, causes collaboration to be able to focus on the success factors of being better than what we are in these various areas. And so I think open book management, keeping your numbers as clean as one feels comfortable with. Not everybody needs to do that. If it is truly a lifestyle business, then that's fine. Then just don't build your bottom line with a sense that you're going to maybe be able to maximize value at some point. It's a different strategy. And then I think, um, again, the things that happen as a result of collaboration and getting the team to drive towards success, to include shared incentives, and bonuses, whatever it is that you get to hang out there in the event that you hit those numbers. So all those things have been things we've been sort of working towards for 25 plus years. And so it all played really well. So when that phone message came on that 9th of July, um, we were postured to, for the lack of a better word, pounce on the opportunity because it seemed like it was a pretty legitimate opportunity. Opportunity, and i didn't have to do a bunch of work putting lipstick on my business because we were work we were driving it forward because that's just the way we built our business so it was culmination of a lot of activities and efforts and things we've learned and culmination of a lot of people's hard work, not just owners clearly just not owners. And it took a team effort, took a village, if you will, to get us there. And then the phone rings and we were ready. We were ready to pursue the opportunity if it played out.
1: I was thinking um, of a time as you were talking about sharing those numbers and uh, being part of the Gemini group where we get together and talk about best practices. But one of them is focusing on the financials and sharing those financials. And um, I'll never forget a conversation I had with you, where you were talking, even down to like computers and trucks, and all that's in the budget, all that's right there for everybody to see, so there's no surprises, oh you know why is he getting a new truck? Why is he not getting a uh, you know my truck's sold everybody's on on page, they know exactly when everything hits, and um, it just was interesting to, to look at it from that perspective that everybody kind of knows what's going on in advance of the year.
2: Thank you well, selfishly, um, all that leads to accountability, and so if you involve people involve your team in uh forecasting or budgeting and then part of the the strategy is to compensate and then and then of course that forecast or budget has to sort of be accepted by ownership or management and we are granular we budget down to uh each store Uh, operates off a budget. The warehouse operates off a budget. It's a cost center. It's not a profit center. The admin team operates off a budget. Again, a cost center, not a profit center. But what it does is it involves your team in setting financial numbers. And then it involves your team in being held accountable for those financial numbers uh, when we're looking at actual versus budget and what's the variance and why. Some of the best conversations are the why we didn't hit those numbers. And they're not because people are dogging it or being lazy, they're, or, or poor salespeople, because of course you're doing all those things to make sure that you're not dogging it and that you're not being lazy and you're not making poor sales presentations, but it causes collaboration and then ultimately drives accountability. So you have great conversations about not only what, but why, and not just why, because you fell short, But maybe why? Because you exceeded budget and therefore, what can we do in other segments of the business where we can enjoy the same results? So you mentioned, Jeff, about trucks. I think one of the things that I think is vital is capital expense budgeting. You need to know next year and the year after what you're projecting in expense for computer servers or trucks or Uh, one, one store a year gets a remodel. So you've got to forecast that, and then you've got to, you need that number of nothing else. So you can plan. And you need that number also so you can forecast your depreciation expense and your financials. But then then you're making decisions that are being thoughtful and proactive. And so you're not reacting to someone walking in your office and saying, hey, the construction department needs a new truck this year. And now if it blew up and it was an unexpected expense, that's a different conversation. But if someone comes in and says, hey, we need a new truck for construction, we would start the conversation as well, let's um let's see what the Capex budget has to say about that because we had conversations about your fleet in the budgeting process. So why has that not come up? Why didn't that come up then versus now? And again, if the truck blew up and it was unexpected, then you got to make some business decisions around that. But again, it it creates collaboration and planning. It creates a metric for people to not only be held accountable for, but to gauge success. And then you can then identify those areas of your business that are sort of variants that you can then either say, okay, what did we learn from that or what can we do elsewhere in the business that would result in a similar outcome?
0: I had the chance to visit Brian at one of his stores in August, um, and I went to that store. And I don't know if you know Brian, but you know later that week I actually drove past some of your other locations too to see them. And so I kind of had the chance to check out the, the Aquaquip operation in person a little bit.
2: <laughs> well, you checked the whole market out, in fact. Well, you, it's uh, you... true. Yeah,
0: I visited yeah. a few people in that area. Yeah, it was, it good was, for you, Megan. It was really interesting. Um, I know you and I have had conversations about what a competitive hot tub market the North North. East is, or sorry, Northwest. Northwest. <laughs> Northeast, Northeast too. Northeast, yeah. But yeah, it was really great to see everything kind of on the ground and what you guys were working on, you know, saw, like you said, some of those swim spots that you have set up in your stores now. Um, and it's funny because I've been thinking back and I don't, I thought it was before I, I met you out there, but I remember us having a conversation about things that were happening in the industry and about Valley Pool and Pittsburgh being purchased by Leslie's and just made this comment that yeah that would that's something you should probably look into that's really interesting
2: <laughs> well now- so by the way i think that was after that was in our in our meeting at one of my stores bellevue to be specific and i think um, that was i think you were out in about august so i was already i really wasn't a year ago significantly impacted by uh, Leslie's acquisition of Corey's business in in, in Pittsburgh, um, but I uh, obviously it sort of came to my radar screen midsummer, and I think that that I met you soon thereafter.
0: I just I just remember at the time the way you said it, thinking <laughs> I wonder if there's I wonder if there's something there.
2: <laughs> hmm.
0: So when this was announced, I have to say I wasn't a hundred percent surprised.
2: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, funny
1: thing. What do you think of? I mean, in the industry, everything from manufacturers to retailers, uh, there's so many changes happening right now. I mean, obviously, it was easy to predict with uh, the aging of our industry, but uh, what are some of your thoughts on these big changes in acquisitions?
2: Um, you know, it's a good question, Jeff. And I, um, there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of uh, merger and acqu- M&A or merger and acquisition a- activity. And there's a lot of that activity driven or fueled by outside industry sources, i.e. private equity, the private equity firm that, that owns Leslie's, the private equity firm that just recently bought Jacuzzi. There's another one out there. Um, Obviously, Hayward's acquisition of Paramount is a little different. Um SCP's acquisition of Adcock is a little different. But there's a lot of activity and I think that I think that oh and Zodiac the the, the whole roll up of Zodiac Fluidra mm-hmm. is really exciting. Uh and that's there's a certain bit of I think private equity play in that as well, meaning outside influence. So I guess um, I, when you see these kinds of activities, some of it's in areas of the industry, segments of the industry that there has been consolidation, like SCP uh, Pool Corp buying other distribution. That's 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 just the nature of distribution, and I think uh, some of the consolidation at the manufacturer level is just more of what we have been seeing. Over the years, it does seem like it ramped up. I guess the other acquisition that I didn't mention is BioLabs acquisition of NC brands. And that is, again, that's just, that's a natural sort of uh, event that isn't probably extraordinary. I think it's a great move on both parties part, but I don't think it's dramatically unique. So I, but I think the activity that we're seeing speaks to the financial attractiveness and upside that our industry seems to have in the eyes of these companies doing the acquisitions. So I think uh on the internal transactions, i.e. Hayward Paramount or Pool Corp Adcock, I think those are uh, more the same, but I think it does show that there c- does continue to be a lot of upside in our industry. And I think that's optimistic and exciting. I think in terms of outside equity, like, Jacuzzi's new private equity partner, or Catterton, L. Catterton, who bought Leslie's a couple of years ago, or some of the uh, other uh, private equity transactions, Fluid Zodiac. I think those uh, say similar in that I think there's a lot of uh, our industry is considered a luxury industry and the luxury consumer brands still seem to have a lot of attractiveness. So all this activity speaks to a lot of upside in our industry, both people from within our industry that see it and people that are in the private equity world are looking at our industry going... There's still a lot of growth here. There's money to be made here and there's a a sea change going on with the challenges of specialty retail and what's happening with e-commerce and so on. So I think there's, there might, maybe it's seen as an opportune market by outside equity, but at the same time, there's a lot of upside. So I, I think what we're seeing in these M and A's just shows that our industry is thriving. And maybe it's maturing to a point where there's other, you know, the hot tub segment is less mature than the pool segment, but I think it's maturing. And there's people like Jacuzzi and people like Masco. There's some big players in, in that in, in the category. And I think that's all leading to attractiveness. So I think all boats rise in a rising tide. I think all of us will benefit from this, the attractiveness of our industry by outside investment. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, Jeff, but I I think it's exciting. Uh, There's been definitely a flurry the last two or three months of activities. Um, Sure, yes. And I think that's neat. I think that's neat. Well, what's exciting
1: is to see it drop down to the level of, especially retailer, such as yourself and such as Valley, when you see those those take place or, or you see a bank lend serious amount of money for me to purchase the business it shows you the importance and the viability of these businesses and of course we're not we are mom and pop businesses but at the same time when they're not run that way and they're run profitable people will invest in them or lend for them too they're,
2: they're viable businesses i think um i think that getting down to the consumer level, like the segment of the business, the industry that you and I are in, Jeff, where we're selling to consumers. I think it, it's sort of new. I don't think we've seen. We've seen other methods of consolidation, such as franchises, but we haven't really seen. That's, a, that's really a model for an exit. In my opinion, that's really a franchise is really just a way for you to, to do what Michael Gerber said. Oh, the e-myth is his work, e-myth and making your business duplicatable and sustainable and repeatable. And that's what a franchise does, uh, which therefore gives you a, maybe a clear defined exit. But outside of franchising in the specialty channel of our industry, there hasn't been any really, you know, m- maybe within specific markets consolidation. But there really hasn't been across regions much in the way of business to consumer consolidation. So I think it is if there's a bit of a sea change coming, particularly when we look at what are the vulnerabilities, what are the headwinds that a specialty retailer faces, escalating labor costs, contracting labor availability, governmental regulatory pressures, e-commerce big box being attracted to some of the big ticket categories that historically have not been sold through big box or e-commerce, i.e. hot tubs or i.e. fireplace inserts. So there's a lot of vulnerability that has a tendency to maybe drive down some of the attractiveness of the business to consumer specialty segment of our industry. But I think that um, there are people like the Leslie's organization, I guess, that are looking at there are strategic reasons to do it. There are economic efficiencies that could be gained by doing it, even in an environment where we do in specialty retail Um, face these headwinds that are going to make could make it challenging if we don't stay relevant in our businesses. So I think it's I think the the thing that has occurred with the acquisition of Corey Crafts business in Pittsburgh Valley and our business here is it is a it's a new activity at the at the specialty channel. I'm again short of franchising. I'm not aware of where there's been something that sort of could look like could be interpreted as some form of consolidation in that category. So I think that's exciting. As I see my
1: peers growing their business and, you know, exceeding ten million, twelve million, fifteen million dollars in sales, that that starts to look and, and and be very profitable. That starts to look very attractive to uh, outside sources, people that we're not thinking right. Aren't even, we're not on their radar now, but thanks to what you're doing now, we are, uh, that does put people on the radar.
2: Yeah. It's, a, it, it's a new, uh, if you're making a list of what exits look like, it's just another item for the list uh that uh, that a year ago, 18 months ago maybe wasn't one that occurred to you. I mean, we could always say, well, yeah, maybe uh SCP wants to get in the retail business and they could be a strategic buyer. Well, they're there yeah, that that might be the case, but they sure haven't demonstrated any interest in doing that to date. So that's not a viable item for the list. And you could have said, yeah, Leslie's wants to get into the quote hot tub category, but until recently they've never done anything that would demonstrate Demonstrate that you really are, that that's true. So I think it gives another avenue for someone uh, a privately held business as an exit. Um, I also, as I learned, not that I was really attracted to it, but when you're getting to the 10 or 15 million dollar revenue area, and you're driving the bottom line appropriately, I don't know. Everybody's got a different opinion about what appropriately is somewhere maybe in the five percent to 10% of gross revenues, then there's now private equity firms that are out looking for Businesses like ours now too, not sure, not companies like Leslie's that are owned by private equity, but literally small and middle market private equity people that are rolling up, going out and acquiring businesses that are doing ten and fifteen million a year. Now they're they're not necessarily paying premiums for them. They're maybe looking at more financial, being able to buy one at a financial buyer valuation because there's a bunch of upside if they can find cost efficiencies. But the thing. What's scary about private equity direct, selling directly to private equity is that you know private equity generally is not a long-term player. They're, they tend to you know flip every three to ten years, right. and so that can be disruptive to a ten or fifteen million dollar business. Not, less so maybe to a hundred million or five hundred million dollar business. But that's some of the stuff that bothered me is because that would impact the culture of the business, and culture is everything. Culture is really everything financial performance of the business is a direct result of culture not solely but a component of so i um i think it's enlightening the list of ways to exit a business like what you and i have here jeff i think is the list is getting bigger got, yeah. again franchise you've got private equity you've got uh private equity owned people that are looking to uh, build an economy, a scale model, I think it's optimistic you know, on top of the other traditional ways that people have looked at exiting their business, family, key employees, outside buyers, things like that. Well, you called me, it was,
1: I believe it was a Saturday. You were doing inventory and you had called to share the news about this just a few weeks ago. In our conversation, I, I, you, you were being very humble, but I, I did have to, um, I I was reminded of the phrase, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And that's something uh, I guess you could say has nothing to do with luck. But boy, timing is everything. That uh, so was really smart of you to return that phone call uh, after after the Fourth of July.
2: <laughs> well, I, so John Antilla, who you know well and is our vice president, general manager, and very key, very key to our business, so when I say because I, I my nature is to to maybe askew on the humble side, and so yeah, we were lucky that we got the phone call, and we were lucky to be located in the Pacific Northwest, which is where Leslie specifically targeted growth because they have no they have no presence here, at least bricks and mortar. Don't have a presence, and John will always say, Is you make your luck, you make your luck, and yeah, I mean, it's a combination of a lot of things. I would say it's just a fortuitous convergence of circumstances, circumstances. So, you can call it luck, you can call it timing, you can call it being in the right place at the right time, you can call it the culmination of a lot of hard work. Not any necessarily, we don't work any harder than anybody else in this industry, but maybe we've been more deliberate and working on certain activities that are going to drive value and drive growth opportunities. You've certainly been smart.
0: Well, I'm curious, Brian, what... What do you see for yourself personally next? I mean, I know you don't have any immediate plans of leaving AquaQuip, but I mean, kind of where do you see yourself going in this in the next few years?
2: That's a great question, Megan. And I'm going to jump up to one of the questions that you gave me in preparation for this call uh, that we didn't talk about. And that is why was this acquisition slash partnership attractive and beneficial? And so when I was all, and so I I think I'm going to answer your question. If I don't, you'll let me know. Um, But when I was, Wayne options, and it wasn't really Leslie's or something else, but even it was when I was Wayne looking at key employees or other things to work towards as an exit but particularly the leslie's opportunity when it presented itself the things that were important to me yeah i need to be compensated appropriately for the value of my business that that's a baseline expectation if the value arrived at doesn't work then all the other reasons you would like to sell your business don't matter so a baseline foundational expectation is you're going to be compensated appropriately for your business but uh, but with that said what was important to me was I wanted to, to basically buddy up with somebody that was going to maintain the legacy of this business. We've, my mom and dad started this thing 60 years ago. And so having this business live on is something emotionally that I, very important to me. And then the third level. So price, the legacy living on and then the people. I didn't do this. Open book management and all the various things that we've been doing over the past several decades was around engaging your people. And it's your people, the culture, it's the people that got you to the dance. It's the people that allowed me to be best prepared for that phone call on that Monday after the 4th of July. So I needed to make sure that, yeah, the price had to be right. And yeah, it. I wanted the legacy of the business to live on, but I also wanted to make sure that it best positioned my team for long-term success and enhance their future opportunities rather than sort of pigeonhole them in a transaction. And this opportunity absolutely gives everybody on my team incredible new areas of advancement and opportunity that didn't exist in an employee, a company with 80 employees. And so I'm very excited about that. The fourth thing that's very exciting to me about it, which is really, I think, the answer to your question, is I think that what we're sort of on the path here towards is Sort of a disruptive change in the specialty pool and spa channel. And I don't necessarily know that it'll go nation to coast to coast or, or I don't really know beyond our local region of the country. I don't even know within our own region of the country exactly what it's going to look like in a three to five year sense. I think we have some ideas around what the where we're going to strive towards doing that and I'm going to be meeting with with the senior team at Leslie's in a couple of weeks to sort of rough out three to five year plans. But the reality is, if you're going to be involved with this industry, um, then doggone it, it's fun to do stuff that's going to be impactful. And in this case, a little disruptive, both in a competitive way, but also in an opportune way for uh, other specialty retailers in our industry. So I'm pretty excited about, I mean, I've made a multi-year commitment to Leslie's. I have absolutely no intention of not honoring that. And I have, I keep thinking about sort of when that multi-year commitment is over it's four weeks in now, so I can't really four weeks today uh four weeks almost to the dip to the minute. I can't really speculate as to how I'll feel after my multi year commitment is up, but what I do know is the next two, three, four, five years are going to be dynamic, and when I say disruptive i I'd rather be on the disruptor side of the category than the disrupt e Side, And so that's when Leslie's made it known they were coming into this market and they were going to do it by acquisition. I had a choice of either being the acquisition or trying to compete against that acquisition. And so I chose to play out the aligning with the acquisition piece. And so I, I'm excited about sort of breaking the mold. And disrupting the status quo of both our business and the way our business is going to behave regionally, and perhaps the way that this model will play out uh, out elsewhere outside the Northwest. And so I'm pretty excited about that. And I get to interact with all the people and all the relationships and all the friends that I've spent the last 40 years building those relationships with one. And so what a what a fun, exciting opportunity. And of course, the most important thing is to continue to drive the financial performance of the legacy business, because that's really initially what Leslie's has bought. So we've got to make sure we continue to drive the financial viability of the business and then sort of align with their growth strategies over time. And that, to me, me is pretty exciting at this juncture of my career I'm 63 um, I'm not done yet but I also know that I'm not going to do this forever it's not a it's not realistic so I get the, the next three five seven I don't know years I get to sort of be disruptive in a positive way. In a change way. And I and so that that doesn't really give you my job description per se for the next three to five years, but it's sort of a, a snapshot of what turns me on about this opportunity. And then with that said, the opportunity that everybody in my company has now that they didn't have four weeks and a day ago, that sort of turns me on too. That's awesome.
0: Well, definitely congratulations. I mean, it's like you said, it's really exciting for you and your your company and and it's big news in the industry. And I really appreciate you, you know, hopping on with us and talking about it. Um, it's been really, it's been really interesting. I'm I'm excited to see what the reaction is from our, from our listeners to this.
2: Um, I will be excited to hear. And I, you know, some, I think the relationships uh, that I speak of Jeff, clearly you're one of them megan as of the last few years you're one of them they're all part of what makes this this business fun and it's all part of what made and honestly it's like a spaghetti sauce with lots of ingredients that cooks on the on the stove for 40 years right um it's all you can't really it's not just like the guy in the guy in um what's that movie where it's just one thing billy really, uh uh, you know what a movie I'm talking about? Uh, just It's just one thing of the cowboy. Um, I have, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, <laughs> okay. never mind. Um, it's not just one thing that allowed us to be in this. Um, in this uh, to be able to leverage this opportunity it's a culmination of a whole lot of things and a whole lot of people and a whole lot of experiences over a whole lot of years and that's fun too that's rewarding jack
1: jack palance in uh, thank you City's city slickers city. city slickers that's it that's
2: it thank you <laughs> i got to so, use this knowledge like that <laughs> so uh, you know it's been fun and thank you for your encouragement and support not just during this sort of last most recent journey but in, in over the years.
1: it's It's been a pleasure to get to know you and uh, there's never enough time to, to chat, that's for sure.
0: We're going to go ahead and end it there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brian. And you know, we'll keep our ear to the ground for more news coming out of your neck of the woods.
2: Thank you, uh, guys. Be well to you all. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
0: Retailer Podcast is produced by Spa Retailer Magazine. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, sparetailer.com, and the Spa Retailer app. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think or email us at podcast at spa retailer.com.